you know, we were confident in our parenting abilities, but this humbled us. <laughs> and so it doesn't matter how good of a parent you think you might be. These situations are tough, challenging situations. Welcome back to In Session with Jared and Clay. I'm Dr. Jared Cox, and we are so glad you are joining us for part two of Mixed Race Families. If you remember in part one, Clay and I began an in-depth conversation with Dr. Greg Harris and Chaplain Jason Darden on different aspects of mixed race families, their experiences dating and raising biracial children, as well as their fears for their children losing their cultural heritage and ways they seek to preserve a sense of identity and belonging in their kids. In this episode, we're continuing the conversation about preserving cultural heritage, and later in the episode, we'll talk about how this particularly impacts transracial adoptive families. So we're going to pick right back up where we left off at the barbershop. Here we go. You've talked before about the barbershop being a place where you felt connected to your culture. Tell me more about that. We talked about the barbershop yeah. a little bit last before. episode. The last, yeah, 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 yeah. I, you know yeah. that's such a big deal. I, I need to go. <laughs> you need to go, coach. Just hang out. And uh, you know, you talk about the guys, and uh, I learned a lot about my culture yeah. at the barbershop. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't wait to go yeah, yeah, yeah. to the barbershop just to sit there and listen to what people said to each other, the arguments yeah. and things that would happen. I just was not exposed to that a lot growing up. When I moved to Fort Lauderdale, we were same thing. It was still the suburbs, but my uncle's shops were in the yeah. rough parts yeah, of town. Yeah. And so not only in the, you know, Driving over there, you're kind of like, and then when you get in there and you know, you're, you're, so you're, you're driving out, you're a little scared when you get in there and you're in the back of the shop and Lord knows who could walk in right, and right, just, right, right, right. you know, I was like scared half to death, but I learned so much. And then I, like over the years, I get my hair cut every Friday night before the football game and just go over there to the shop and it would just be like, you know. Listen to the stories, man. Greg, who y'all playing tonight? <laughs> y'all finna get killed. Y'all playing the all, but you know, I went to uh, I went to uh, private school, yeah. St. Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. Y'all playing Dillard, and them brothers yeah. finna <laughs> roll over y'all. <laughs> you finna, and, you finna get killed. Finna get, <laughs> finna get killed. <laughs> <laughs> Are you seeing them white boys over at St. Yeah. Thomas? Those are machines. Those are machines. I said, oh, you would just hear the conversation. I was just like, oh, my. You know, but I learned so much there, and it's just neat. But so, why were you scared? You were, you were a black kid in a black barbershop. Why are you scared? Because I'd always grown up. I was always around white people all my life. You know, for and up until, you know, we moved when I was six, six years old, and I've not been around that many Coming right. in with a with a you know yeah. with a uh, wine bottle yeah, and, a, yeah, and a paper bag, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and brothers that you'd seen walking up and down the street that I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> this, are this, you getting a haircut? Yeah. Oh, are you going? <laughs> Can I help you, sir? <laughs> they're not there to get a haircut, exactly. but they're just there to to yeah. talk and and yeah. make comments on everybody that comes through. I never seen anything like that before, and so it was. All new to me. Coming to America. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. That's right. That's yes. one of the classics. Yeah. My first okay. shooting was in East Oakland at a barbershop. I was with my dad and my wow. uncle. Your first shooting. Oh, yes. I've seen people. <laughs> oh, I got a story. I've seen. Your I've seen, first I've shooting. I've seen somebody get shot in the head in front of me. I was at the mall. They were shooting. Blah, blah, blah. Wow. Shot in his head right in front of me. And then I saw somebody shot at the martyr station. I was getting off the train. Those are different stories. Different stories. But I was in East Oakland. Me and my dad are in the barbershop with my uncle laughing and joking or yeah, whatever. We yeah. come out of the shop, drive by. And my dad takes me, puts me behind the car. So, yeah, there's some sketchy characters. Yeah, like, yeah. So uh, I identify. I don't go anymore because I don't have no hair. And I miss it, man. I miss it. Because miss it was it. an adventure. I miss it. You never knew what was yeah. going to happen there. I mean, like, and you, you went to the barbershop knowing yeah. that this could happen, but it, I'm going yep. because this is... This is awesome. Sometimes I just walk in and listen. Yeah. To anyway. Man, that's crazy. Yeah. 
It seems mixed families evoke opinions, right? Many times unspoken, but you can see the looks on people's faces. And I'm curious to hear from you what you would like people to think when they see a mixed family. If you could move our society forward a few steps, what would they see when they come across a mixed family? I would hope we would look at the mixed family and say, you guys are leading the charge. Mm -hmm. Like you are the new face of America, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Almost to that's the way it should be. Right. That's the way it should be. Not that all families should be mixed, but that love that they did not let that stop them or impact them or, to you know, to go back. And we'll, like I said, we'll do this conversation. They didn't let fear keep them from love. It's courage. Courage. Yeah, yeah, yeah and and, and I ha- that's what I think when I see white families with black children. I go, they sure are courageous. And then it goes to, I hope they know what they're what what they're what they're doing Get, or yes. what they're getting, getting into. into. Yeah, and that's a fear. Yes. So mine. the answer would be no. We don't know what we're getting into. Mm. <laughs> um, what, but what? it's interesting to know that you think that because when we get those looks, first of all, I don't notice them, mm. but my wife does. Mm-hmm. And she gets them much more when she's not with me than she does when she's with me. But when we when she gets those looks, we don't know what they mean. We assume it's not good, but you know, I don't know. It's it's nice to hear at least one voice say, "Hey, I see courage in that." That looks are fear to me. I think there's are people that 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 don't know what to think about. They're afraid what they to just lose saw. the black community? So, is that what they're afraid of? That's, that's, I used to, a, so if I can be transparent, confession time. Yeah. Confession time. I used to be angry. Honestly, when I saw a white family with black kids, I used to be like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, yeah. and, and, and part of that is, I think, from the media a little bit, because right. we would see celebrities and they would adopt a black kid from Africa and put pictures all over Facebook. Like, look at me. I'm going to pat myself on the back because yeah. I rescued some black people. Right. So when at first when I used to see that, I'd be like, oh, you trying to rescue some black people. And, and then I've changed, especially coming here. When I got here, I said, look at all these wonderful Christian people. Yeah. adopting these children because they really care. Right. I tell you what, if you are not familiar with this community that we live in here right now, that is one thing that this community can absolutely yes. be proud of is no there are doubt. a lot of people we around celebrate here. No a lot of people around here who foster and take care of kids and adopt kids. I mean, a bunch. No and, doubt. Uh, our, our community, I tell you, it's special it's unique. for that. Yeah. yeah, it's really unique. Go ahead. I didn't mean to No, no, it. I'm glad you no, said that, that because that was, that was perfect because once I got to know the community and and sit down and talk to some of the people that I work with mm-hmm. that have black children. They go, we didn't care what color. We just wanted to go and yeah. help some kids. That's right. And I said, oh, yeah. no. Yeah. I got to change my mentality. So it went from being angry to Oh no! Do they know what do they know what they're doing? <laughs> Y'all got black kids, and they're not around any black people. Right. Oh no! So now it's like, all right, we we got to get some news out, some word yeah. out on how you how you raise these black kids, right? Because Be- at some point in time, they're going to question, right, right, and they're going to want to mo- uh, maybe not a hundred percent, but they they want to. Be in touch with someone that looks like them too. They want to connect because they they know they will notice that they are different. Mm-hmm. And where are the people? And who are the people? And what are they like? The people that are like me. Mm-hmm. And so I, going back to to your book, I think that's why it's so important for them to connect because those questions are going to arise. Mm-hmm. And the ones the, the the families that sometimes are having trouble with their with their kids and certain are are because you know maybe maybe they haven't introduced them or maybe those kids are, or those kids are now questioning and wanting to identify with that and and it, you know it, it produces struggles. So I think there's a lot of importance in in what you're saying. You know, a minute ago I said that no, we don't know what we're doing. Speaking as a 
you know, an adoptive family who takes in a child of color. No, we didn't know what we're doing, but this is my third kid. Mm-hmm. And I have given up on knowing what I'm doing <laughs> with any kids, <laughs> with, with, with my own kids, Amen. right? Amen. I mean, and, and it honestly, I, I find it kind of laughable. And, and this is maybe me compensating. I don't know, but I've, People who act like they know what they're doing with their kids, I just want to say you're a phony. <laughs> you are a big fat faker, you know, because yeah, you know, first time every day it's the first time for something. Yeah, you know who's good at something the first time they do it all the time. You know, not 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 in my house. No, not in my house. But no, you knew how to love them. That's right. Yeah, and it's pretty common. I, you know, I'm the elder, I guess, of this group. And <laughs> I've never, I've never sat around a group of people my age that would sit and, and talk and say things like, man, I really nailed that parenting. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't do a single thing different. <laughs> I mean, I, I was on it. I mean, it was bullseye <laughs> straight down the back. Now you might run across a few that are, that arrogant now but uh, to your point jared don't no, know none of us mm-hmm. know yeah. what we're doing and i think that's the way it's supposed to be no doubt. and no doubt. and you adjust and it it literally forces you and some are better than others but it forces you into uh, you know adopting an appropriate flexibility mm. you know for for life and to then to to you know in a real way your children are raising you and if you can model, <laughs> if you can model an appropriate flexibility in dealing with them, then you pass that on to them. Now we're raising healthy citizens. Mm-hmm. If somebody's too rigid and won't and won't allow, as a parent, to be molded by that experience, we can create a lot of problems and challenges. Yeah. Preaching. Coaches preaching. Coaches you, you see, coaching. I got quiet. I, I said, to, oh, I, I, I was oh. looking to pass the plate now. You know, collection. Now's the time. Now is the time. Ask for money now. Yeah. Yeah. The, oh. real, the real point was just agreeing with that. Nobody, we don't really know what we're doing until it's over. Yes. And then. You know, and then nobody listens to you anyway. So it's you know. I don't know, Coach. I I I think my parents are more brilliant. It, it, you know, not that the things that they, but I recognize, man. Now I see what he was trying, what he mm-hmm. was, tr- you know, trying to do. Mm-hmm. Not that he did it perfectly, but what he was trying to do. And you know, I never question whether my parents, so that's why I say this about you. I never question whether my parents love and accepted me. So that word acceptance and the word love that you all, now that I look back at it and you think, man, my dad or my mom, or I look back now, they always loved and accepted me more than anybody ever other than my wife. And that's my only hope for my kids. If they can look back and say, I Dad wasn't perfect, but I know what he was trying to do, you know, then I'm okay with that because I sure hadn't been perfect. Nowhere near it. Before we go any further, I want to play for you an interview I did with Brandon Tittle. Brandon is the executive director of Sparrow's Promise, the local agency that works with the foster care and adoption system here in Arkansas. If you're unfamiliar with the foster system, the goal is to provide for children only temporarily. The purpose of the foster care system is supposed to be to protect children from abusive or criminal or negligent situations so that they can be reunited with their biological families. But after the state has given the biological families typically a year or more, to comply with court orders that would bring those children out of those dangerous situations, a permanent living situation is sometimes needed for those children, and they become eligible for adoption. And sometimes this creates mixed families, otherwise called transracial families, which adds another layer of complexity to our topic for this episode. So, 
Take a listen. Here you go. Okay, so today I have with us here in the studio Brandon Tittle from Sparrow's Promise. Brandon, glad to have you here. Thanks. It's good to be here. Tell me a little bit about what you do over at Sparrow's Promise. Sure thing. Uh, Sparrow's Promise, we are a private placement agency. So we work with children who are in foster care with the state of Arkansas. We license homes, uh, foster homes, and support those foster homes, uh, support those children. Uh, we've been doing that for a long time. Can you give us some stats about the racial mix in the foster system? So about 60% of the kids in care are identified as white. And so that leaves 40% that are minorities. There are lots of studies that uh, talk about how black children stay in foster care longer than white children. Blacks and other minorities are overrepresented. It's the same nationwide. Uh, 33% of children in care are African-American when they make up 15% of the population of children nationwide. These stats are largely influenced by the drug problem, right? I've heard that the mandatory minimum sentences for drug-related crimes is believed to be a factor leading to this overrepresentation of people of color in the prison system. Is that accurate? Yes, and th that's all connected. And you can go back to the 90s to some policy decisions that were made. There's articles all when they really started to make hard prison sentences for like crack and cocaine. Then the black population became overrepresented in the jails and then the trickles to the foster system. So that, that's all connected. Yeah. This episode is part of a series on racism. And I'd like to hear from your perspective as someone who works within the foster and adoption system. Do you see evidence of racism there? That's a good question. And as, as I think about that, Starting off with, I mean, I, I know lots of people that are involved in child welfare. Everyone that I know is, are they're good people and they have good intentions. But then you think about this idea of systemic racism and child welfare is a system and it's entrenched with that as well. And it's hard for me to see it all because I'm white. There was a study done in 2017 that 53% of black children will be involved in an investigation of child abuse. 53%. 53% by the time they're 17 years old. 53% of black children mm -hmm. involved in an investigation. And that compares to white children, uh, 28. Two to one almost. Mm -hmm. That is, to me, astounding. Even the white number is astounding, that a fourth of white children are going to be involved in an investigation, not an indictment. No, no. But even in an investigation, a fourth. Yeah. Way too many. Yeah. 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 Wow. That means there was somebody saw something that made them call a hotline and open an investigation. Wow. So that's, that's a lot. So in my discussion with Greg and Jason and Clay, I'm hearing that it is really important for children of color to stay connected to their communities of color, where they come from. And I know that the foster system is designed to only be a temporary situation for those kids and a temporary situation for the biological families, but is there any emphasis on maintaining that connection to the community of color for those kids that are in foster care, perhaps in training or resources for the foster families? I would say it is talked about, but there's not a lot of practical training. In Arkansas, every foster and adoptive family goes through the same training if, if they're adopting out of foster care. And there's a section in that training that does talk about, it doesn't talk just about black children. It talks about all children, helping them maintain a connection to their culture. It's not a lot, but it is in there. My wife and I, we have been to several conferences. We've adopted two African-American uh, little girls. And we were at a conference when we heard someone really first talk about it in depth for the first time. So we had already done 
we'd already been opened and done all that training. This was additional training and we sought it out for that reason. And that was when we listened to an African-American lady talk about being adopted by a white family. And it was actually a, a lot of times you hear that in a negative connotation. This was actually very positive. Uh, she was just talking about all the things that her parents did that we hadn't, hadn't even crossed our minds yet. So we took a lot of that to heart and, and started trying to take that more seriously. And then since we know what the training is, we, we talk about it with our friends um, a lot. Actually, we have friends who've adopted multiple races. And so we just, we try and, we try and talk about it, different things that we need to be thinking about. But there's, um, I think there's a lot more needs to be done in that area for training. And there's, there is plenty of training out there. I think we just need to take advantage of it. I find that particularly relevant for adoptive families because I know that whenever we brought our daughter into our family, we, we just wanted her to feel at home. We wanted her to feel like she belonged and was one of us. And from the very first moment she came in our house, she jumped right in with our boys as if they were biological siblings. We knew her questions would come. And they do come. But as an adoptive parent, you want your child to feel a part of the family in every way. Because they are. Adoptive families are forever families, right? And the challenges that adoptive families have to help their kids connect with their new forever family, yet still stay connected to their biological roots, it's really hard. Have you experienced that? Oh, absolutely. Our girls were both uh, babies when they came to us, and we have two older biological children. And they fit right in, just like that happens with all, with all of our kids. But the questions come, and they just start to notice that they look different and start to ask those questions, and they're fine. My wife is so good. And I think... And this partly from that conference uh, that we went to, and we started thinking about, yes, our daughters, I mean, they feel completely a part of our family. But in our circles that we run in, every person that they meet that they look up to looks like us. Right. And we were pretty convicted that they need to have role models that look like them. And so we made some intentional decisions to help with that, you know, who do we take them when they to get their hair done? What doctor do we go to? As much as we can. So the the day uh, we brought home our our first our our oldest daughter that we ended up adopting, she took her to Walmart, and the first African American lady she met, she stopped her and started talking to her. Oh wow! Just in the aisles, tell me the things. I know the hair is different. Tell me what I need to know. Just at Walmart. Just at Walmart. How'd that go? Well, uh, she said. The lady laughed at her first, <laughs> then went and got her friends who were there and they all kind of laughed, but then they just start showing her, pulling things. This is what you need to do. There you go. And, uh, and it was, and that's kind of been, you know, her philosophy is she, she just asks, it doesn't bother her at all. The other day I got to hear Benjamin Watson speak and, and he made a statement that I hear in your story. He said that humility is the number one characteristic that we need to address racism. And hearing your wife's story at Walmart, you say, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. I need some help. These people may laugh at me. They may go get their friends and all laugh at me. But you know what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm still going to talk to you. I'm still going to ask you for help. I'm still going to try to connect. And I bet by the time they were finished, I bet they all had smiles on their faces and they were friends. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guarantee it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's how it happens. A lot of times people, they have a hard time knowing where to start. Humility. Start there. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. There are so many things that affect what these kids are going through and how they're experiencing it and what it's doing in their minds and their emotions that we can have no control over. And we can do our best to help them but even sometimes that that helps not enough and so uh, we've talked about that how 
this process has humbled us. You know, we were confident in our parenting abilities, but this humbled us. <laughs> and so it doesn't matter how good of a parent you think you might be. These situations are tough, challenging situations. And you're not going to be able you're not going to have your perfect little picture of how you think everything needs to fit together. You know, if we, I, there's no way 10 years ago, if we were to imagine what our family would be like right now, no way we would have imagined. No this. way. No way. Uh, but we love it. It's our family. God has been so good to us to bring people around us uh, to support and help us. And we have a good community here in this town, people who will support you. That's been good, but it's, 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 it's a challenge and it's, it's humbling. So you might as well just accept it and be willing to reach out for help. Yeah. I think what you said speaks to a problem that we have across our nation about what we expect this picture to look like the picture of America, the picture of the United States. What do we expect it to look like? And it doesn't fit together quite like we kind of imagine it really should. And that's one of the things that you learn as an adoptive family is, what do you think our country's biggest need regarding the foster and adoption system is? That's a really good question. Because there's, I mean, there's not, there's not a magic bullet. There's not one thing, you know, that would fix everything. What we're trying to do here in our community is, and we think it'll help, is we are trying to look at families holistically. And that's why we're getting away from just caring about the kids, although we're always going to do that. But we want to look at the whole family and restore the whole family. The way foster care seems to work out for the most part is like, we're going to take care of your kids while you work out the things that you need to work out. And we want to bring that together and say, we're actually all on the same team helping this family, kids and parents be able to get back together. And when we've seen that happen, when we've seen foster families who work really hard and close with their biological families, when we see one of uh, a biological family get connected to a community that's very supportive of the whole family, it works. And that results in stronger families. It results in our community being stronger. I have talked to some black leaders in our community about yeah. recruiting black families. And there's a lot of distrust. There's um, that much tension mm -hmm. about it. Yeah. And I think that's, the first hurdle a foster family has to overcome if they're going to be a partner for reunification is the idea that you just want to steal my children. Right. And we recognize that. And the way that that happens is through relationship. That's a big wall that's going to take a lot of work to overcome. Right. Yeah. I think there's a stigma out there about white families thinking they're the saviors. And I, I can hear that. But that's not really what I see. What I see isn't so much a white savior mentality as much as it is maybe just generally families in general struggle with the savior mentality because they just want to help kids get out of bad situations. I don't see that being about black or white. I just see it being about adults helping kids. But I will say this. When there is tension between the foster families who are trying to help kids and the biological families who want their children back, that's good. These kids need people who will fight for them. They need people who will love them and want them. Right? Right, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, so that that is and okay with me. I think what we can do is find a way so that we're still fighting over the kids, but we're not fighting against not each, fighting other. each other. That's not right. Not fighting each other. Yeah. And that's, that's what I, I think we've got to work on. Cause I mean, I can't imagine not having either of my two daughters in my family, but 
if their parents, their biological parents were able to fix the things they needed to fix, they needed to be with them. Yeah. I believe that wholeheartedly. Yeah. And we turned some faces when we were fighting for their parents to be given a fair chance to bring their kids home. And so I, I think there's a way that it can all be done. Brandon, I'm thankful this community has people in it like you, people who work to help families. And for our listeners out there, check out sparrowspromise.org and, and see what this organization has going on. Jason, you mentioned earlier that you're afraid that transracial adoptive families don't know what they're getting into. Why are you afraid of that? You're doing a good thing by adopting a child. Oh, my goodness. That is a wonderful thing, right? Yeah. And then on top of that, you have a black child or how do you call it? Transracial Transracial. family makeup. Right. And you know what it means to have kids because you've had kids before, but, but... when they come with a different ethnic identity that you don't know about that you've only seen like from TV or books or whatever, it's a real challenge. And, and that's why I say a lot of people, I feel like they don't know what they're getting into, you know, cause these kids, like, like coach said, if, if you're not tied into your story, you feel like an alien. So you're, you already feel like an alien on top of that, you're adopted. So you have all these layers and then you can't speak into their, their identity. So, so where are they getting it from? So they have to search to find it. And and some kids, I I feel like search in the wrong places and they get themselves in trouble. And then the parents are like, I don't understand. How do we help this child? And, and, and so that's why I feel like they kind of don't know. Yeah you know, what they're getting into. Right? So the concern there is actually for the kids or is it because again, kind of losing connection to the community? Is it actually for the kids that they will wander or? Yeah, that's where I come from. It's it's for the kids. Like I just think about some families that I know now that are struggling through some mm-hmm. stuff and, and just looking at the kids, they look totally like, yeah, I, I a little lost, huh? Lost. Yeah. And, and I, the parents my, are doing the best they know how to do. Sure. Right. My concern would be for the entire system. That's me too. Not the That's me too. Not just yeah. one variable in the yeah. system. Yeah. And and when you talk about when you say don't know what you're getting into that that doesn't equate with shouldn't do it. Right. That just means a lack of understanding of the challenge right. that right. is inherent to the decision you've made. And and it's you know it, there's a lot to it. There's a lot more to it, yeah, than just what and I'm going to generalize. But I've worked with a lot of these cases before. There's a lot more to it than just thinking you can love someone right out of right. So, a, you know, anything or into anything. When I talked with Brandon, I asked him about training that's available for mixed families. And he said, there are resources available and everyone gets some training. But my take on it is that because foster families are supposed to be temporary situations, I don't know how useful that kind of training would be. But I'm curious what you think. What kind of resources do you think they should have? What kind of training do you think should be put in place? What are your recommendations in that area? Let me jump in and and so that that's... This may, as best as I can, I'm not going to do this perfectly. Let me tie in all three of those, even your first question, your second one, and that one that you just asked. A person that might be more be very concerned about me being concerned about losing my heritage is a person that probably doesn't, hadn't taken the time to know me and to know the importance of being a black man is is, is to me. So... There's a connectedness, a relationship that that, you know, well, as well as me being connected to coach and to you, I know what the Native American, what that means to you. That's part of you and part of your makeup and part of who you are. 
being a black man is part of who I am. And my white friends that really know me know how important it is. So when they hear me say, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little fearful of losing my, my heritage, my culture with my grandkids and my great-grandkids, they can understand that a little bit because they know how important being black is to me. And so I tie this in even with, with adoption. When you're doing the transracial adoption, if you're doing that and you, if that's something that's important to you and you, you also, you're saying, Hey, I'm taking this, this black child or this, this native American child. How connected are you to black people? Because Anytime that I have children, you know, we, we talked about, you know, just you talked about dog. Mm-hmm. Well, when we first got a dog, we, what we asked was, who else has dogs? Because we I need to be friends with other people. So what did you do? How did you how did you get your dog to do this? And how did you get to? And these are resources for me. It's hard to raise a black child without black resources. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just going to say it. It's just hard to raise a black child without black resources. And that child is going to, at some point in time, notice they look different from somebody else. They feel different than the other people that are around them. And you're going to tell me you're going to raise this child and you don't have any relationship with black people. That's a little interesting to me. I won't say bothersome because, again, like I said, that you're doing a great thing. But, but we say it takes a village to raise a child. Same thing. If I'm if I if I go and 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 adopt a little a little white child, I need to be connected with white people because at some point in time, he or she is going to ask the question, "What what who where do I come from? Who what is there? May be things that about being white that there. Well, let me say that not may. There are things about being white that I don't know. I can't answer all those questions for them. And I think for white parents that do the same things for black children. It's nice to be connected to other black peoples because they become resources, very welcome resources, because I've been asked and I'm there to help out as much as possible. So I, I, I try to connect all those because that's part of the relational aspect of everything that we're talking about. If we really want to know each other and we have all these questions about each other, then how connected are you to people? Because once you get to know them, you know how proud I am of my heritage and how where I come from and what it means to me. And then how proud that this child may want to be. They don't know yet, but they're going to want to know about their heritage. And you want people there that can help them with those things. I think it really does in an interesting way. It does all tie, kind of tie together because it's hard. You know, you were talking about just where this conversation started months ago. It's hard for us to talk about racial justice or injustice and about becoming closer when I don't connect with any white people and white people don't want to connect with any black people and we don't connect together and we don't work together Change is not going to happen, but in order for good change to happen, we have to get outside of ourselves and understand where each other comes from. And I believe the same thing when it comes to these children. We have to get outside each of ourselves and say, what can we do to help these little kids out in these situations? And I, and I believe being connected to other families that are of different cultures and different races can help us in those ways. But, you know, if you... If you were to adopt a white child mm-hmm. and you were to ask a white white family to say, hey, tell me about about the I think the white families would would not understand what you were talking about, because I, I don't think they're really very aware about what it means to be white. Well, I mean, you know, just let me tell you, we talked about barbershop. Cutting a white child's hair is different than cutting a black child's mm-hmm. hair. The first time I cut a guy, a white guy came to me in college and asked me to cut his hair because he knew I cut a lot fade. of the guys. <laughs> you gave the fade. And I did it one time with the clippers, and I looked at all the hair that fell on the ground, and I said, I'll be right back. <laughs> and I said, what in the world? This is not – this. ours doesn't do that. You know, it's a. It's just different. It's a different, it's a different type of thing. So, you know, my thing is – 
there, there, but there are, and I, and I would hate for people to not, I, I, I don't know. I just, that, that would bother me that people, they may not understand, but I would, I sure would want them to be able to help. A lot of ethnic subgroups in, in America, they would hold together the Italians, you know, the Greeks, you know, yeah, and the, even the African-American mm. or the Spanish. I mean, and everybody kind of tried to stay in those neighborhoods and kind of hang together. And then, and then over time, you know, through the, the mixing and, and stuff of that, that a lot of that heritage and and the pride of that heritage, and it wasn't all a good, happy process, but it that was kind of broken down and mm-hmm. blended and, and mixed together. In a real way, the majority, you know, white, who might be have ties back to a particular group, let's say that they, you know, were from, we have some Irish in, in our family, you know, uh, some folks are from Ireland, and some were from Dalmatia. I think was the name of the country as they came over. So, but you know, I, we we don't connect to that right. very much at all, other than having the knowledge to say that's where ancestry you know came from. So, so there's still, I would say that that whites have gone through that process of dilution. To the point where they don't identify a white culture, but other minorities have they're not at the same place. Coach, so you know we're not supposed to really, or I won't say we were not supposed to, but we don't like ask a whole lot of why questions. Why have more? Why have more white people not gone through the process to find out more about their culture? And 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 I'll, let me just add this question, and you can you answer, but I. Would they be? Would white people feel ashamed if they found out that they came from certain cultures that are maybe less than, or they mm-hmm. view as mm-hmm. less than than where yeah. they are now? Yeah, I'm not so sure that I can give a definitive answer. Right, right, that, but right. I, I don't. I, I probably not. I wouldn't think as much of the latter. Right. I think there's just genuinely uh, they're not interested. They're just not curious. They're not interested in it, and I believe it stems back to that individualism yeah. and the old, you know, the old idea that Americans, you know, are, you know, the best of the best, and so a lot of that is diluted and diffused. You know, the mixing pot idea of the American has taken a lot of that away, mm-hmm. and I just, I, they just don't think about it. So, no. so, so a follow-up question then is what, if they're not interested in your, your own culture, there's no way you want to be interested <laughs> no, in mine. That's right. They're, 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 and, and not only that, they would say, not me, but they would say, and, and they would look at you almost with disdain. Like, yes. Why can't you give up on that right. and get with us? Yeah. The individualistic driven, non-interested in heritage mass. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, I just there you I, have it. I, I, I. I don't mean to take us down a tangent here, but I think this is why so many white people think that reparations are ridiculous. They say that wasn't me, and there's a big disconnect between who we are today and where we have come from, and for the most part. I don't think white people connect themselves to that or hold on to that as much as the black community wishes they would. Do you know that? For, you know, when growing up for us, you know, family reunions, we look forward to those. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, you could, you could be with your, your family and your people and everybody. And, you know, just, we, they would talk about, they would go back and, your great great grandfather did right, this, and right. this, and and we would hear the stories. You know, I think on both sides, black and white, the sense of family and family reunions is kind of losing its place. People don't, you know, they we don't do that anymore. The the families are just are becoming very individualistic. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of a confession time for me. Mm-hmm. My grandmother passed mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. I went to Oklahoma 
to the funeral. And we go out to the graveside and where she is going to be buried. And for the first time, I realized that there were two whole rows of my family members lying side by side. I've never seen it. No connection. Wow. I knew those people. Right. I knew all of those people. But that's the first time that I had been there, and it hit me, and I wanted to go get my kids, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to say, hey, let me tell you about these people. Mm -hmm. But my kids were already in the car. Yeah. And I didn't do it. I hear our conversation in that mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. You know. You can take them back. I can take them back. And go do it because that's yeah. that's what we're talking about. And it and it almost sneaks up on you, doesn't it? It's it's like you're yeah. standing mm-hmm. there and you and it hits you like, Wow, these are these are my people. This is my tribe. Yeah. This is this is where, you know, we we sat and laid, ate, cried. This is where we buried, you know, our our people. I have we have similar out on the western Oklahoma, you know, frontier hillside graveyards where these homesteaders I mean, you, you can't hardly find them. I mean they're not even they're hardly marked, but we have yeah, our family you know, by the dozens that are out there. And for I'm very fortunate that my father has taken me, yeah. you know, to uh, all of them. I don't know if the reason I'm like this is because I'm white. I realized the other day that I haven't heard enough of my grandfather's stories. And I'm beginning to wish that I had started listening to them a long time ago. But whenever our family would get everyone together, I usually spent time with my uncle throwing the ball or exploring the woods on my grandfather's property. And I'm starting to see that I didn't spend as much time listening to anyone else's stories as much as I did making my own. And I'm just thinking out loud, but I'm inclined to think that a lot of people would be like that unless you're inclined to listen from an early age. But I wonder if white people tend to make their own stories more than they tend to listen to others. You know, I just think about the African diaspora, like a high, high respect for the ancestors and, and for yeah. the older, yeah. right? And I think we've lost a lot oh, of that in America yeah. today. And yeah. it pains me. Like, and I'm just, I'm a different kind of guy where I like hanging around seniors. <laughs> I really, really do. Like, yeah. even more than my own peers, I'll sit and talk to, you know, a senior just to hear their story. And man, uh, in America, it's just, just we have an aversion to seniors yeah. and sitting and listening. Yeah. The youth are, are scared of them. Yeah. Yeah. They're scared of them. They, they're uncomfortable. That's We've taken them to homes mm-hmm. and they're uncomfortable yeah, 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 yeah. as if they're, these aren't people. That loss of community, it's a real tragedy because in the old days, we sat around the fire. And we listened to the elders because the elders were appropriately the ones who spoke. You never, you never spoke before the elders. And if you sat around the fire, the council fire in particular, and if the elders didn't speak, you sat there silent for hours and hours and hours out of respect. There, there was originally in our First Nations and our Aboriginal and our our African cultures, because it's very much that that way, at least in the bush still now in Africa, because I've spent a lot of time there. But but there was always a deferment to the elders. They carried all the wisdom, all the experience, everything, and the whole community deferred to them uh, out of respect. And so it wasn't until they spoke— And it wasn't giving you, it wasn't, they didn't give you permission to speak. You just waited until it was appropriate to say something. And it was always after the elders. And I only bring that up to say, you know, we're, we're so far from that now in this country. And and in fact, elders are dismissed Mm. and the older you get, the, 
You know, people look at you like you're, you don't know what you're talking about. You're out of touch. You don't have anything to add, mm. you know, whatsoever. It's really a sad thing. It's a tragedy. Yeah. And, it, and it is. So you can't you know, know who you are if you no. don't listen to you. <laughs> and it's an erosion of this idea of, of Com- culture. Community. Yeah. Wow. Unimaginable today. So one of the points that came up in my discussion with Brandon was that the foster system needs black representation, mm-hmm. but there's a trust barrier to overcome. He told me that what they're doing is they are trying to not only help the children, but help the whole family. And they are moving towards what they call provisional placement. Instead of taking a child and moving them into a stranger's home, a foster family's home, they are trying to keep the child with someone the kid knows. Extended family, community. And that seems like a way to help keep kids connected with their community, with their culture, maybe a little bit better than moving, you know, into a transracial situation. Right. But I think that the there is movement politically about that, but I don't think it's completely established yet. One of the issues that comes up, though, and this is from someone who wasn't comfortable being named on the show, mm-hmm. their experience is they have a hard time or one of the challenges that it's that there's going to be with the provisional placement mm-hmm. is that the trust problem is so big that a lot of people in the black community don't want child services coming into their homes making sure it's okay for that child to move there mm. and so there's a there's another barrier to black participation there we say trust and it's uh can certainly be characterized as that, but there's a fear. Fear. There's a fear there that if I'm vulnerable enough to let a a white-run government organization see behind my door. I'm going to get in trouble, too. Or, I, I mean, I'm rendered completely powerless. Right. They can do anything they want to do. They can do anything they, anything they say goes. And then, so there's a, uh, we're, and I think it's appropriate to say trust, but I believe it's a, it's a gut level fear that I have to, as a minority, stay guarded. Mm-hmm. I have to stay behind this closed door because I've seen too many times when uh, the man just did what he wanted to. So not and, only and do we not trust the authorities that be that are supposed to be there to help, we don't trust them, but also it creates the look that they have something to hide. It creates the look that, Hey, I can't have you in my house or I'm going to get in trouble too. Cause I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't, I don't know if it's getting in trouble or, or even to the point to where, you know, in my situation, I feel like they're going to, do more work to try to find something wrong than they will to try to find that this could be a good place for, for this kid. It is just, you know, we've, we've kind of like when I drive through the white neighborhoods, when I was a, a teenager, you know, white kid drives through a neighborhood and, and, and I've, and now this is, this happened. This white kid drives through a neighborhood in Mercedes. Then you look at them. I drove my dad's Mercedes. I drive through that same neighborhood in Mercedes. I get looked at different. It just it just is what it is. What's he doing here? So it's investigated a little bit more. And, and I think more black families don't want to be investigated like that. There is a guardedness to it and a distrust. I, I do. I think that is a good word, that they're going to try to find more stuff wrong than they will saying that this could be a good place for this kid because that's how that's part of our history (laughs) but to be vulnerable you know you have to feel safe yeah Yeah. period and if you don't feel safe you're not going to open up and be vulnerable and the optics of that 
can be taken to say, oh, they must be doing something wrong in there. Or, But you better add to that idea that, no, that, I mean, because it's not a safe world for some people. Right. They're just scared. They're scared to do that. It doesn't necessarily mean they're doing something wrong. And if that's the only thing you can come up with, right. well, that's, you know, that, that speaks as much to you, you know, as it does to the, in, the entire situation. It's not, a, it's not a safe world and it's not the same world. You know, it's, we're, we're on different levels, yeah. <laughs> different levels. So with the struggle to get black participation, there will also be a void in black leadership. Not necessarily at the administrative levels or the top tier levels. I'm talking about at the community level, at the local level, the leadership that helps people work together better, that serves families better, that supports them better. There has to be some movement with that if we're going to be increasingly capable of meeting the kids' needs. You're right. More black leaders, more Leaders in general need to, I don't just say black, but more leaders in general. But, I, you know, yeah, there could be black leaders. But I think more people in general, if this is what we want, do we really want this? That's what we've always been talking about, inclusion. Mm -hmm. How included do you want us to be in that process? Uh, unconditional inclusion. Inclusion, yes. Not, not like you can come in the room, but you can't sit at the table. Right, right. right. Or you can sit at the table, but you're not going to be directed. Right. right. And those subtleties, you know, are, they still exist. They're still, uh, you know, out there. Yeah. And, you know, maybe sometimes they're imposed where they're not. And, you know, that, that can happen too. But mm -hmm. none of it happens in a vacuum. It's so strange to me because the sense I get, maybe I'm tr maybe I'm tracking wrong, but the sense I get is that, the overwhelming majority of black people feel that way. They feel like they can't get a seat at the table because the deck is stacked against them. And never once have I had been in a conversation where any white person has said anything to that effect. Mm -hmm. And so am I naive to think that we're talking about the far minority of white people acting that way? And the and the far majority of black people feeling that way. Am I naive for thinking like that? Because I just that's not my experience. It goes it goes back to our our four levels mm -hmm. of the complexity of this idea of racism. Uh, you know the intra aspect of racist. I mean that those ideas that you hold inherent in the interpersonal. Mm -hmm. What might occur between me and you? Then that institutional racism, which policies and ideas, you know, are generated that are inherently favor the majority, and then systemic racism, which is is such a large aggregate. And and what happens in that in systemic racism is that it appears as if these spontaneous emergence of variables they just they just come out of almost nowhere but it it's it develops the ideas that you're talking about which means you can be void of having the idea that the deck is stacked against black people but in the institutional and systemic arena it is and because we're void of that idea personally we think it's not happening. And there's the big disconnect. Yeah. And, and so when I listen to my friends who say it's happening, of course, I being systemically oriented, I'm like, yeah, you better believe it's happening because it's, it's isomorphic to every other system that's going on, right. you know, ecologically mm -hmm. too. And, it, and it's what happens in therapy. It's what happens yeah. in yeah. family. It's, a, it's the same story. You know, it's the same reason why, you know, married people look at each other and go, you're accusing me of X, Y, and Z, and I'm not doing that at all. Right, right. right. I'm completely, you know, 
void of that. It, anyway, it's it's those same patterns, and so I, I don't I don't simplify it to the fact of being naive. It's systemic truths that allow allow this to happen. Right, and if you don't hold those four, you know, levels together and see how they're interconnected and how they play, it's it's difficult to fathom it. Because, Jared, you're right. You know, most of the white people you know have never had a conversation like that. They've never had an overt conversation that says something like, let's exclude these two black guys. Right. Let's don't let them be a part of. And no, they're, in fact, overtly the conversations are Let's get the most skilled, most talented person that we possibly can to fill this role. Yeah. Whoever that is. Right. You know, and they and they will And that's occurring passionately too. deny. Yeah. That's occurring. Anything too. else. I mean that that is happening. That uh, I mean that's not absent. That's happening as well. But globally or across the board, it's not the norm per se. And so I think we all hold a responsibility, you know, in the disconnect, every one of us. And I think we all hold responsibility in the challenge of this because not only of its complexity, but in this culture, we tend to try to simplify things down to these these answers, these reasons, these rationales. And we all do that, and it all really messes it up. Mm-hmm. And so anyway... It's, yeah. it's backtracking on some of the things we've talked about for a long time, which is good to circle back to yeah. that occasionally and and kind of, you know, include it in. But there, yes, I, black people feel like they don't, the deck is stacked against them. And a lot of white people think, I'm not stacking the deck. Yeah. And, and that, until we can all sit at the table and go, I mean, hopefully you guys would go, yeah, those dudes, they really don't think, they don't, they're not stacking the deck, but that don't mean the deck ain't stacked. And I can't just discount what you say. If you, mm-hmm. if you say the deck is stacked, then I'm going to go, okay, I'm with you because I know you. Right. I don't see it. I don't understand it. And I didn't do it, but I don't care. Right. If that's your experience, I'm going to do everything that I can to, you know, to help you. I'm going to trust you more than I trust my own experience because you are my friend. Because our history is not all about slavery and our, our history is, it's a, it's beautiful. The black heritage, the black culture is beautiful. Our past is beautiful because we're con- our, our connectedness that grew out of of everything in the the church and the family is beautiful, and our families are beautiful, and I want them to know that. And that's one of the reasons. It's not be- it's not to know a past of hurt and pain right, and right, just right, 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 suffering. Right. That's not that's not. <laughs> yeah, was there some of that? Yes. Yeah, yeah. But that's but not who you are. That's not who I am. Yeah. No. Yeah. I'm 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 black and I'm proud to be black. Why? Because it's it's, it's beautiful. It's it was it's beautiful. Our families are beautiful. Our my reunions are beautiful. I want them to know the 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 culture, the 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 music, the the talk, the language, the 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 knowing you're going to be loved, the food, the everything. There's just so much that surrounds it that is a beautiful thing that these kids I think it's important for them to know and that's why I said the same thing about the white youth I think if they would go back and look at their culture too they would find out how beautiful where they came from Mm -hmm. was and so that's important to me that's important to me that's important that's why I want my grandkids my great grandkids to always know where you know, uh, where we came from because it's, it's beautiful. It's not about hardship and suffering and pain and slavery and all of that. It's about a beautiful family and culture that grew together and bonded together and overcame 
a lot to be where we are right now. You know, these two episodes right here, they were the most fun ones to make for me. Certainly the most work, but definitely, definitely the best. I really enjoyed that. If you don't know much about the adoptive system, check it out. If you have confused thoughts, if you're not quite sure what to think, or maybe if you think negative things, when you see mixed-race families, challenge yourself. When you see mixed-race families, see love. See compassion. See people who are just trying to bring this world together. To love kids. To love people. I mean, that's, that's what it's about. So if you can't see that, ask yourself some questions. I'm glad you could be here with us. You know, for our listeners out there, I want you to know how much we appreciate you. Thank you for being a part of what we do. In full transparency, we've had a little bit difficulty getting all the guys together. Everyone's been managing the changes in our schedules due to COVID. And, you know, the other three guys on this show, they all work at the university. And everyone in education right now, their worlds are way different. Their schedules are way different. And everybody's just trying to adjust. Thank you for allowing us some flexibility in how we get these episodes out. We really appreciate that. We've got some more episodes on the way. Clay and I have a new series that we're planning. You'll be seeing those soon. Until then, thank you for joining us with another session of In Session with Jared and Clay, and come see us on InSessionPodcast.com. Session Podcast.com.